standing this morning for our reading of Scripture. Uh, we continue on in uh, chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark this morning, and we look this morning at verses 13 through 20. Gospel of Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Let us hear and attend to the Word of God. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires of for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. <clears throat> Throughout Scripture, the planting, germinating, growing, and the fruitfulness of seeds, even contrasted with weeds, is used to teach truths about supernatural regeneration, about being born again. And also about sanctified transformation, holiness of person as the fruit of justification. And I think you're well aware of that, that throughout Scripture we have uh, that reference. Uh, and it's a, it's a good and uh, applicable one for us. And of course, one of the most famous is the, the uh, parable that Jesus uh, uses and that we have here in Mark chapter 4. But I want you to see that within the context of the Gospel of Mark, as we continue in chapter 4, we are continuing in the larger uh, exposition of Mark about straight talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. That Remember Mark started out by telling us that Jesus Christ is the source of the gospel uniquely because he is son of God and son of man. He is divine and human. He is Lord. He is mediator of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And he is creator. He is uncreated God. So uniquely, he is son of God and son of man, and he is the source of the good news that God reveals to us in the gospel of salvation. In verses 1 through 34 of chapter 4, that's the first part of Mark chapter 4, we have Jesus' didactic parables. Not just this parable of the sower or the soils, but there will be other parables that we'll look at as we go on. But we have Jesus' didactic parables, and they're used to reveal and conceal by his mysteries about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. I pointed out to you, and we need to be reminded, that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is synonymous. They're, the words are used interchangeably. Some have tried to make it a difference between them, but they're not. Uh, Jesus is talking about his kingdom. And we've identified and said that for our, uh, our understanding in the new covenant, the church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the custodian of the mysteries. The mysteries. He is the trustee. The mysteries of the kingdom have been given to him to share with us, to reveal and to make known. And Jesus uses parables for that purpose. He did not invent the parable form. But Jesus identifies his use of parables to be about revealing his kingdom mysteries to his disciple believers. And we have several references from this chapter about that. 
I'm not going to go back over that, but, but also challenging to us is that Jesus intends his use of parables to also conceal his kingdom mysteries from disloyal unbelievers. And there again, we have that in the context of chapter 4, but in the larger context of the, the three preceding chapters over the conflict of Jesus' public ministry, his identity, and his uh, revealing the meaning of what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is about. And so uh, we look this morning, well, I'll, I'll just review verses 1 through 13. Remember, he gave us the story of the parable. And to understand Jesus' parable by a revealed and learned knowledge begins by faith, believing Jesus' mysteries about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. That is, the gift of faith enlivens the soul to the intuitive witness of the Holy Spirit bearing the fruit of God's word. That's what Jesus concludes with down in verse 13. Uh, he quotes from uh, Isaiah, that challenging passage, where he talks about the revealing and the concealing of the mysteries of the kingdom of God uh, based upon whether there is faith or unbelief. And he says in verse 13, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And it's not as clearly delineated for us in our English translation, but I believe there's more than stylistic variation in what Jesus says here in the words that he uses, or at least as Mark writes in Greek for us, that he's talking about a, a revealed and intuitive witness of the Holy Spirit, a knowledge that we don't have innately, a knowledge that we don't have just intellectually. It's an understanding that comes intuitively by the Holy Spirit's regeneration, changing our mind, enlivening our mind, opening our eyes of faith to the Word of God, opening our ears of faith to the Word of God. We see and we hear as regenerated, changed, transformed, renewed minds. We have a new mind in Christ Jesus. And that's part of the intuitive work of the Holy Spirit of God. But then there is also added to that a learned knowledge that comes by study and application. So um, two words are used to bring those together by a revealed and by a learned knowledge. And the idea is like a seed that germinates from within. Uh, how does a seed grow? God has created it. We used that as a call to worship uh, last week from Genesis chapter 1 about God created life within a seed. God is the giver and the sustainer of life. How does a seed germinate? It has a, a life within itself as created by God. And that seed germinates, but it's nurtured by outward things, by soil and water and uh, air and the, the different aspects of creation that God has ordered all working together. And that's the illustration that he gives us about what is happening supernaturally within our souls from the Word of God. The seed of the Word of God germinates from the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit and then it's nurtured from without to bear fruit by the internal and the external means of grace. You see, uh, I pre preach and proclaim the Word of God. I'm scattering the seed of the Word of God. But the life in itself is of the Holy Spirit's power to regenerate the heart and the mind. I cannot affect that. I can't make that happen. Only the Spirit of God can. But that's the illustration that he gives us of the power of the Word of God. That it is God's power unto salvation. It's not something that we as humans can engineer. It's not something that we can uh, energize. Only the Spirit of God can. Just like the seed that germinates. Only the power of God can make that seed germinate. Uh, but there are also external means that are used to nurture that seed to bear fruit. And so there are external means that God has appointed 
the foolishness of preaching. The world thinks you're a fool for being here this morning. The world thinks what I'm doing is foolish and silly and worthless. But not so God. It's the mysteries of the kingdom of God. How the Lord takes and uses this, the foolishness of preaching, as the external means, along with the other appointed external means, the Lord's Supper, our singing and praying, our worshiping God by the order of worship and the liturgy that we engage in is sanctified by Scripture, those things that God tells us to do. They're the outward means of grace that are the external nurturing of the fruit-bearing of the regenerative power of the Word of God to bring fruit of righteousness into our lives, demonstrated to the world and pleasing to God. The world may hate it, but God is pleased with it. And so it's a wonderful demonstration to us of what Jesus is saying in reference to the parable here of the seed and the soils and the sower. So although unbelievers may hear the parallels of spiritual truths from Jesus' parables, Unbelief is demonstrated by no fruit of repenting or confessing the guilt of sin and the gift of salvation by the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration. And one of the things I want to point out to you, I don't want us to miss it, and I'll bring it up again at conclusion. Jesus emphasizes what in this parable? I know we sometimes get lost in the details and we're so interested on uh, the aspects of the soil or the seed or where it was sown and this kind of thing, but we miss the conclusion This parable is about fruitfulness. That's why we had the call to worship from Isaiah about the fruitfulness of the Word of God. That the Word of God is not empty. The Word of God is not worthless. My preaching and your hearing here today is not superfluous. It's not empty. It's not just a formality. It is connected to something far greater in terms of the kingdom of God. The mystery of the kingdoms of God. Don't look with the eyes of of, uh, flesh. Don't look at the empty chairs. Look to heaven. We're connected with God in His worldwide harvest of the history of the working of the kingdom of God among us. We're a part of that. And what does Jesus say in the conclusion of this parable? That the kingdom of God is fruitful beyond all the frustration and beyond all of the lack of fruit in the seed that's sown outside the field. Focus on the abundant harvest. And that's my faith, beloved. That's what we see by faith and trusting the Word of God. That we're a part of the harvest of the kingdom of God. And it's not just here. It's across time and space history. It's around the world. And it extends to heaven. And so that's where our focus is to be. That's what we're to find hope and encouragement in. Fruitfulness. That God's Word does not return empty to Him, but it accomplishes that whereunto He sends it. So we look this morning then at verses 13 through 20. This parable of Jesus is often called the parable of the sower. It's sometimes referred to as the parable of the soils. Uh, Perhaps you've heard both. But I want you to see uh, as we parallel the initial giving of the uh, parable and then of Jesus giving the explanation. So look at verse 3. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. This is where Jesus starts, and he he says, which was a common event, uh, you would see it, maybe sometimes even we too, if we drive out in the country, might see it today, uh, farmers out in the field. Now, they have automated equipment these days, but in Jesus' days, of course, they did it by hand. And he points out that the sower is out sowing, doing his uh, job. He's scattering the seed in terms of planting and preparing for the planting. And then look at verse 14. The sower sows the word. 
So Jesus tells us here, the sowing of seed symbolizes the spreading of the word of God. And what has Jesus been doing? What is it that Mark has been recording that Jesus has been doing here? Jesus is always going about preaching and teaching. He's in the synagogue. He's in the town. He's in the house. He's by the seashore. He's out on the hillside. Everywhere Jesus is going, sowing the seed. He is preaching and teaching the word of God. The seed is the word, is what uh, Jesus tells us here in Mark's gospel. So the hearers of this parable do not have to be farmers to understand the meaning is about planting seeds. And as I've said, we don't have to be farmers to understand this parable and how Jesus explains it to us. I, I think a good parallel is what you might see in your own neighborhood regularly. And that's someone sowing grass seed as they're out in their yard or they have a service that comes by and uh, attends to the yard and is sowing grass seed in a suburban yard. So look back at verse 4. Jesus goes on, And it happened as he sowed, as he was scattering, that some seed fell by the wayside. <clears throat> this is the pathway. Um, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. So here was again another common experience. While the sower is out in his field, he, he is so close to the edge of the field that as he's scattering the seed, some of that seed is scattered over into the hard path, the path that leads to the field. And so as the suburban uh, grass grower is out spreading his grass seed, some of his seed is scattered over onto the driveway. It's kind of the same idea. The, the intention here is that the word of God is scattered on a hard heart of unbelief so that the birds, as they easily gobble up the seed that's on that hard surface on top of the ground, Jesus says, Satan's rebellion deliberately takes away the word of God's witness out of conscience. Look at verse 15. These that are sown are the, the uh, seeds that are scattered over on the pathway, on the wayside, on the uh, driveway. These are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Now, I want you to know here that, that Satan is a created being. He is not a divine being. He does not share the attributes of God. He is a created and powerful spiritual being. We know he led the rebellion against God, and he is identified in Scripture for us as being in rebellion against the Lord and being the arch enemy of the Lord Jesus and the gospel. And so the reference here is to Satan's rebellion and those who are like in, in the rebellion against God, like Satan. It doesn't mean that, that Satan comes to each individual one and snatches the word of God. There, there may could indeed be those hearing whether it be hearing this morning or hearing through uh, the recording of this message, who are hard-hearted against the things of God. They are in league. They are like the devil in his rebellion. They are like Satan in his rebellion. And that deliberately takes away the word of God's witness to conscience. Their heart is so hard and calloused against the word of God. And, of course, that references those who were uh, in this context and in this day wanting to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Those religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees, and those who were in league with them, even the Herodians came together with them to plot against the Lord Jesus. In the very context of Mark's gospel, we're told that was a growing intent whose hearts were so hard against the word of God that they were following the rebellion of Satan. And the, the word uh, was not uh, softening 
their heart and their conscience. And we talked about that, even Jesus' warning about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So that, again, is in this context of Jesus telling us this parable. Look, if you will, at verses 5 and 6. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. So here is the grass seed that's sown in the dirt in the gutter between the curb and the road. Or in this case, it was scattered on the stony ground just outside of where the field had been tilled up and prepared. And it was a shallow shelf where there was just soil on top, but there was a hard rock shelf underneath. And and Jesus describes this type of soil and this scattering of the seed outside of the field in that ground as the word of God that's heard superficially, shallowly, as moralisms of self-improvement. But they're not being any rooted in it. It's rootless in the heart when experiencing the heat of tribulation and trouble and persecution for biblical truth and authority. That's how Jesus describes it. Look again at verses 16 and 17. These likewise are those um, sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness and they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. And so here again, we we are not to become disheartened. We know that this happens. There are those who who immediately respond to the the gospel and to the idea there that, oh, this is is helpful. It gives us a sense of of moralism. It provides us with some sense of meaning. Uh, It gives us a a direction even towards self-improvement. Many have so uh, corrupted the gospel to be nothing more than self-help. That is not the true gospel. And Jesus warns us about that. And he tells us that it's rootless because it's not the true meaning of the word of God. The gospel is not about your helping yourself or adding to what Jesus did or looking to Jesus as a moral example. Those are the things that are simply repeated over and over and redressed over and over from generation to generation. And we must be careful to point out that that is not the true gospel. And that what happens when people buy into that kind of self-help and moralism and self-improvement, it's rootless. And when uh, the persecution, when the trouble comes because of standing for the authority of God's word, they wither away. They have no root to hold them. And of course, we see that happening. It's happened in past generations when we stand for biblical truth and particularly for the hard things of God's word about the way people live and about identifying sin. We find that many turn away. They don't like to hear the word of God say this is displeasing to God. And the word sin has become a a, a hated and despised word. Um, It's. It's one that really means to miss the mark. You've heard me say that before. The word sin in and of itself, in its etymology, in its history, it simply means the archer who was shooting for the target and the the arrow missed the target or missed the bullseye. And so the application is sin is missing God's standard of holiness and righteousness. It's not in reference to, uh, to other people first and foremost. It's in reference to God and His holiness. That's how sin is identified, the transgressing and the breaking of the law of God. It's not only in positively breaking those laws, 
but it's also in not measuring up to God's holiness and God's standard. That we are unable in our human ability to do that. And it's offensive to the flesh. It's offensive to the arrogance and the pride of man as it was to the Satan. That's why there's rebellion and resistance and hatred for God. Enmity, enmity, hatred between sinners and God. And so Jesus tells us that there is an outward effect when the gospel is misrepresented as self-help and self-improvement That there are people who buy into it and like what they hear and like that it gives them some kind of moral focus and moral compass. But when it's really pressed to have to stand for God and say, no, what God's Word says is sin in a culture that is awash with self-indulgence and and uh, self-deification, we're our our own little gods. We become gods for ourselves saying what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. And if we say that uh, these wicked things are good and acceptable and they make people feel good and they help people out, if anyone stands up and says, no, God's Word says that's not right, then that's persecution. That's the heat that is drawn down of displeasure from the world and from the powers that be in rebellion against God and His Word. Will you stand? Will you stand for what God's Word says in terms of morality? It's not just being moralistic. It's being rooted in the ethical nature of God who is holy. And so the scriptures identify for us those things that are so offensive to the world. And of course, we know it's summarized in the Ten Commandments. How could the Ten Commandments be so offensive? Uh, That's what is always shocking to me. Really? You want to come up to someone and say, oh, it's okay for you to steal. Okay, well, I think I'll have your car. I think I'll have what's in your wallet. No one lives that way. And so the broader application of you shall not steal becomes an offense because it's a reference to God's holy standard. But on a personal level, we want that. (laughs) We acknowledge that. You know, steal from somebody else, but don't steal from me. And so that's just one example of the uh, uh, convoluted thinking and the uh, depth of the despite that's in the rebellious heart of people against God and His holy standard. And that's what Jesus says. There's no root in those who won't stand for the holy um, authority of God. That God has the right to tell us what is good and what is evil. The uh, next application Jesus gives is in verse 7. He says, And some of the seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it out, and it yielded no crop. And again, we can liken this to grass seed that spread over the edge of the yard, where uh, it spread here among thorns. Someone's out sowing the grass seed in their yard and maybe they, some of the grass seed is spread over into the flower bed where the, um, maybe the re- roses are growing or whatever or outside the edge of the yard where there are weeds and indeed there are thorns growing up. And the idea is here is that it's choked out. It doesn't grow up. The, the weeds choke it out. So the Word of God is often twisted and heard selfishly as a means to worldly security by material wealth and easy pleasure life. 
It overgrows and it chokes out the external witness of the Word of God. I, I think this one is so dangerous and it's so prevalent uh, today. Look at verses 18 and 19. Now these are the ones sown among thorns, and they are the ones who hear the Word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the Word, and it becomes unfruitful. And... The idea is that there are those who will indeed twist the Word of God. They twist it and and they play upon people's selfish desires that the Word of God becomes a means of worldly security. They have anxiety. They have um, fear. That's the cares of the world is really the word anxiety. That they're fearful and they're looking for security. And so they look for security in worldly possessions, in worldly position in worldly wealth, that that will secure them. If I just have more wealth, if I just have more position, if I just have more uh, possessions, that will give me security in this world. And so they turn the gospel into covetousness, wanting more. That somehow they uh, enter into this idea that, that God has to prove Himself. Prove you love me, God. Prove you love me by giving me more. And that's a false gospel. It's hearing the Word of God deceitfully for material wealth and for the easy pleasure life. This is the way that we gauge how God blesses us and how how God is with us in that we have a life of no trouble. We have an easy life. We have a pleasure life. We have a life of no uh, uh, dealing with heartache or struggle or physical pain or disease or issues that relate to the struggles of life. Even in our career or in our job or in our raising of children or in our tending and caring for others, perhaps within our family. There is a false gospel that says the way that God proves His love and the way that you know God's love is that you have an easy life with no trouble. That is not what Scripture says. And Jesus warns us about that here. He says there are those who twist the Word of God like twisting thorns that grow up and choke out the good seed so that it does not bear fruit. Thorns don't bear fruit. They choke out the fruit-bearing plant. And so Jesus is, is warning us here carefully about this. And don't let the cares of the world and your insecurity and your wanting to find uh, security through worldly possessions, don't let that twist and choke out the true gospel that says God, in His love and in His care, will never leave you no matter what your hardships, no matter what your difficulties, no matter what your uncertainties that you face. You live by faith and not by sight. Don't put your security in worldly possessions that think that they will secure you against the troubles of the world. Beloved, I don't think we can ever get tired of hearing this. We live it day in and day out. We live in this world where there's much trouble and difficulty. There are many hurts. There are many uncertainties. We don't know what tomorrow may bring. We're routinely praying for one another in these challenges, in looking for jobs and for maintaining careers. We have people that come and go who are transferred. I know it's a burden on us. I know we feel heavy-hearted. We miss them not only in their love, but we also feel concerned about how we continue on together as the body of Christ. But we trust the Lord. The Lord will provide. We look to Him. That is the message of faith. That's the call of the gospel and the mysteries of the kingdom of God that God provides in ways that that we don't know today. 
But that He will make it plain. We sang the hymn. God moves in a mysterious way. These are the mysteries of the kingdom of God. That God is at work. That God is working. Don't have the Word of God twisted and choked out because of the cares and the anxieties and the worries that you deal with day to day. And don't be misled by the false gospel of prosperity. God does not prove His love to you like an indulgent grandfather. God proves His love to you by a self-sacrificing giving of His only begotten Son who died for our sins. Not to give us silver and gold, but to give us the freedom of conscience that our sins are forgiven and remembered against us no more. And we have a place in the family of God. He is our Heavenly Father. And if we are in tatters, if we are struggling to make ends meet, if we are faced with hardships and uncertainties and don't know where we're going to live or where we're going to go, God goes before us. So Jesus says, don't hear this false twisted gospel because it will not save you. So to hear this parable in faith is to believe what it reveals about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 9. And he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The redundancy here means to have ears of faith. To hear with the ears of faith, believing what this parable reveals about the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus himself identifies this parable as a seminal parable for understanding the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 13. Do you not understand? I'm sorry, I'm sorry verse 13. Uh, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Do you not intuitively get it? Does this parable not click with you? How then will you come to learn the meaning of all the parables? And it's by those two ways, by the internal faith of the Word of God that Scripture interprets Scripture and the external study of the Word of God. Even as we saw this morning, Jesus gives us the interpretation of this parable. And he tells us it's a seminal parable by which we can come to understand the other parables about the kingdom of God. So if you look at the conclusion of the parable, look at verse 8. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And if you look down at verse 20, but these are the ones sown on good ground. This is where the field was cultivated. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Every field does not bear the same harvest. But what Jesus says here is the emphasis is on the abundance of the harvest. Some fields are bigger than others. Some crops bring a bigger yield than others. In different years and in different places. And so here, the Lord Jesus is giving us the conclusion of this parable. That the seed and the soil, they're drawn from the picture of farming as a faith lesson about the kingdom of God. So where do farmers plant most of their seed? Where do preachers preach most of the word? (laughs) It's where the field is cultivated. The fact that some of the seed fell outside the field was secondary to the harvest and to the fact that most of the seed was scattered in the field. And the field of the world Most of the preaching is scattering the Word of God to those who want to hear it. There are more who, who in in the preaching of the Word of God, there are more here this morning who want to hear the the Word of God than are not. 
Now you say, wait a minute, outside, there are people all over this place. There are thousands upon thousands of people that are not in church this morning. They don't want to hear the word of God. But the ones who are gathered here this morning, some 30, some 60, some 100, they want to hear the word of God. Most of the seed is sown by the farmer in the field. Most of the preaching is preached by the preachers to those who want to hear the word of God. And that should not surprise us. It doesn't mean we're failing. It doesn't mean we're missing something. I know I've heard misguided preachers who've said this oftentimes. And many have been going out into the, the curbsides and the roadsides and street preaching. I don't fault them for that. But that's not where most of the preaching takes place by God's design. Most of the preaching takes place in the field of God's people. That's what God has designed. The farmer plants most of the seed in the field. So what are the differences between the soils here? The differences are the condition of the heart. The heart hearing. Those who hear and receive the word of God with gladness. As we said, the internal and the external working of the germination of the seed of the word of God. And there are those who hear the word of God scattered over the field, outside of the field. Their hearts are hardened in different ways, as Jesus gave description. They're not the majority of what Jesus is talking about here in this parable about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is greater than the world. I wish I could get that through to us all. By faith, the kingdom of God is greater. It's wider, it's deeper, it's higher, it's longer, it's fuller than this world. Thank you, because we need to believe that. The kingdom of God is greater than this world. You don't know what God is doing in this world. You don't know where there are other fields of God sowing, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. You don't know where those fields are. God is doing it. In this community, in other communities, in this nation, in other nations, around the world, in past history. How can you put a number on the redeemed of the Lord? The vision that we have of heaven says that they're numberless. More than the stars of the sky. Do you believe Jesus saves more sinners than he created stars? Is that hard to believe? Well, do you believe the word of God? Do you have faith in the word of God? The kingdom of God is greater than the world. We're called to faith. And how is the seed made to be fruitful? I don't have the power to make a tomato seed grow. You like tomatoes? You like herbs? Do you like to plant some seeds in your yard or perhaps in your um, deck uh, pots where they grow? How can you make that seed grow? Do you ever do ex- uh, experiments when you were in uh, school or your children were in school? We're going to do a, a science experiment. We're going to plant a butter bean seed or we're going to plant a tomato seed. And we plant it in a little pot of dirt and we put some maybe fertilizer or we pour water on it and we tend to it. And, and, you, and you, did you do the two? The one where you plant two seeds and you nurture one and you leave the other by itself? And what happens? Recently we, we bought a beautiful basil plant. We brought it home from the grocery store and, and we put it by the window every morning. I mixed up a little concoction of uh, fertilizer, uh, um, uh, vinegar and water full of nutrients, and I watered that basil plant, and it grew by the window there until one night we left it by the window, and it was a cold night. And we got up the next morning, and the basil plant was drooped over because the cold got to it. We tried to resuscitate it, and we got it resuscitated enough to get a few more leaves off of it, but finally 
it withered away. Because the external nurturing of it, the conditions wouldn't allow it to continue growing. And so here, Jesus tells us about the Word of God. It has the internal, intuitive, uh, enlivening power that comes from the Holy Spirit of God. We can't affect that. I, as a minister and a preacher of the Word, cannot affect that. I cannot make the Word of God germinate in your heart. But the Holy Spirit can. But what I'm to do is to nurture it externally by the means of grace. By being faithful and telling you, this is what God's Word says. Here's the Word of God that directs us in prayer and how we are to pray. Here are scriptures that guide us in how we're to sing and lift our voices. A new song in our heart to the Lord. Praise to our God. I can't make that happen. But I can nurture it externally. And from the internal transformation of heart, we engage in it. I believe God has put a new song in your heart. A a song of praise, a hymn of praise to our God. It rejoices my heart that we come together and sing and pray and worship together as the external nurturing of the germinating power of the enlivened salvation that God has made us alive who were dead in trespasses and sin by the washing of regeneration by the Word of God. And so how is the seed made fruitful in the world? Let me give you an encouraging testimony about this. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. I love that passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as Paul is applying there to the church at Corinth. Not to be divided, not to be schismatic, not to be vying with one another in envy and in pride and in arrogance, trying to outdo one another and claiming allegiances that are divisive within the body of Christ. Paul says, who am I? Who is Apollos? We're fellow workers with God. God will reward us in terms of the labor that we have, uh, that we have extended and how we've done this. It's, it's for God to make that decision. But we're, we're the same, whether we're planting or whether we're watering. One is not uh, to a greater advantage or more important than the other. You have to have both. The seed must be sown and the seed must be watered. And he uses that analogy. Certainly it, it, it coordinates with what Jesus told in the parable. But who is it that makes the seed grow? Who is it that makes the harvest fruitful? It is God. And so we look to both the witness of the internal power and working of the Holy Spirit of God that He takes the Word of God. Only He can transform the heart. By implanting the word of God with faith and repentance. And then the external nurturing that God has appointed by his means of grace. So how is the word of God made fruitful in the world? Within the body of Christ? By the external and the internal God appointed means of grace. And we have received that this morning. We have received the implanted word in our souls that is able to save us. We've received it by the the public worship of God, the sowing of the seed, but it is germinated, it is is livened by faith 
by the working of the Holy Spirit in us. So we have that intuitive witness from the Holy Spirit of God that we are alive in Christ, that the Word of God is understandable, that we have learned and grown in our knowledge. And it's not just in terms of intellectual knowledge. Have you grown in faith knowledge this morning? And what I mean by that is not that you learn something new. I don't care whether you learn something new. I'm not trying to wow you. What I want to know is that did you hear with the ears of faith, with faith knowledge that gives you greater hope? Has your hope been built up this morning? Have you been encouraged in the Lord? Have you delighted in the worship of God? Have you looked heavenward and not around you at empty chairs? Have you looked and said, oh, it's been good to be in the house of the Lord together? That you want to be here? That you're nurtured? That your hope has increased? And your faith has grown? That's what I mean by faith hearing. And so that's what I pray the Lord would sanctify. And as we come to this Lord's Supper, it's a means of grace, of God's presenting to us assurance to encourage us. We're to be warned. We're not to take this Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. And that doesn't mean that we make ourselves holy. It means that we're honest with God, that we're not holding back in resentment or unconfessed sin, that we're not running like a, like a spoiled child who resists um, confessing 